Well, hey, friend, welcome to Job with Julie, hosted by me, Julie Slattery. Just as a reminder, this podcast is a listener-supported outreach of authentic intimacy. Well, today's episode all started with my love for reading fiction. I am always looking for a good book to read or listen to, and several months ago, I found Charles Martin, and I have been plowing through his books ever since. Charles really has a gift of storytelling, which he uses to draw readers into God's heart for our brokenness. Now today I'm talking with Charles about his series called The Murphy Series, which is a series of three fictional books about a man working to rescue people from human trafficking. You know, the unfortunate truth about human trafficking is that it's really happening all around us. And as you would guess, the effects of survivors goes way beyond what happened to them physically. Charles is deeply passionate about the gospel and what it means for all of our lives, whether we're ordinary people reading his books, we're wounded people who are suffering, whether you're a victim of human trafficking, or perhaps you are even a perpetrator. You can see in his books and hear in his voice the gospel message as he shares God's love. So grab your coffee and some headphones as I introduce you to one of my newfound favorite fictional authors, Charles Martin. Well, Charles, it is a joy to have you on Job with Julie. For most interviews that I do, I'm researching nonfiction books, like heavy topics, but I actually came across you in reading fiction because you're a fiction writer. So I, this was a surprise to me that I'm like, wow, I want to interview this guy. So you're one of the few fiction authors I've had on the podcast. And thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm grateful you called. I have to give credit to my aunt, Pam. So I love fiction and it is so fun to find a new author. But as you know, you can't just look at the New York Times bestseller list and say, what are some good books? Because there's so much just bad language and inappropriate stuff. And I almost feel like if I read a book that has that stuff, it's almost more powerful than watching something. I don't know if that's true for you. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Because if your eye gate is opening up to something that you're creating with your own mind's eye, and that seems to settle sometimes deeper than what we would see created by somebody else. So I agree with you. Yeah. Um, like I can remember fiction books that I read 20, 30 years ago and scenes that I can't get out of my head. And so when she said, oh, I'm reading this new author that she had found and he's a believer, he's clean, he deals with great topics. I'm like, okay. So I started reading and just really have enjoyed your work. And then specifically came across a trilogy that you wrote um, called the Shepherd series, if I got that right. Is that right? The Murphy. Keeper series, the same thing. Yeah. And, um, so, yeah. Yeah. And it really hits on the whole theme of human trafficking. And uh, the, the main character is sort of the hero that has his own flaws, but is really drawn to rescuing particularly children out of human trafficking and women. So I thought, hey, that would be a great place to start and just kind of learn from you. Like, how did that topic even become something that you wanted to write about? 
about five, maybe six years ago, I was on book tour in uh, in northeast Georgia, about an hour northeast of Atlanta, in a little town called Buford. And for me, uh, a book tour is a rather unromantic thing of me getting in my truck and driving several thousand miles to, you know, umpteen bookstores and going in and doing my dog and pony show and thanking folks and that whole thing. I got to Buford. I was headed to a bookstore called Liberty Books. It's one of my favorite bookstores. And I got to my, it was a motel. Okay, where I come from, if the doors face an interior hallway, that's called a hotel. But if they face the parking lot, that's called a motel. So I show up and my first clue should have been the glass between me and the man checking me in was about this thick. But I'm like, I'm pretty low maintenance. So I got my key. I went to my room. My truck is the only vehicle in the parking lot. I throw my stuff in my room and I walk down the hall to get a water bottle. And on my way back, a car caught my peripheral and I, I looked and it was this really nice, expensive Jaguar. And the man driving it, when he drove in, I could see for some reason, and I don't know why I noticed this, but I saw his wedding ring and I just, the sun happened to hit it. Okay. So he parks and he gets out. I'm six feet. He was bigger than me by a pretty good bit. He was probably six, four. And he was a really big man, broad shouldered, just a big guy. And, but he was also really well dressed. He looked like he got to run a bank or a hedge fund or something. And I figured this out later. His room was behind me and there were some steps behind me. But in order to intersect me, he walked around in front of me and then came down the hallway because he saw I was walking to my room. And he was kind of hurrying because he wanted to get me before I got to my room. And normally on something like that, when you pass somebody, like you'll move out and they'll move out and you'll kind of. Well, when I moved to the side, he stepped in front of me. Hmm. And my radar was kind of already dinging because this motel is not in the best part of town. It, it didn't appear to me. And without saying hello, without introducing himself, without anything, he just looks right at me and he says, um, yeah, so I've paid for some time with these girls in the room down the hall. And sometimes they like to have somebody watch us and sometimes they like to have somebody join us. Are you interested? My first thought was not real Christ-like. My first thought was if I put my fist into this guy's face, he might go over that railing and land on his Jaguar. Mm. I'm not really going to be able to explain that. Because as soon as he said it, something in me got mad. Mm. Knowing hitting him was not the best thing I could do. Plus, he was a good bit bigger than me, and I wasn't too sure. You know, I wasn't sure how that was going to go. So I just shook my head and I said no. Mm-hmm. And he just like, you know, walked past me and I watched him. He walked down to his room, walked in and I went to my room just a couple of doors down. And I got on the phone and I called Christy, my wife, and I was kind of unpacking it with her because it just I don't know how to express it to you. There's a word that I want to say that I'm not going to say, but it really just made me mad. OK. Yeah. And as I'm talking to her, this car pulls up these two seductively dressed, very attractive young women. When I say young, I don't know if they were 21 or 14 or 16 or 18, because I couldn't tell. Mm -hmm. I just know that when they got out, they were somebody's daughter. Mm -hmm. And then also in the back of my mind, one day, maybe somebody's mom and certainly somebody's, you know, friend and all that. I watched them walk down and go in the room and I just, it just, it just got me. Mm Mm-hmm. About 45 minutes later, they walked out, the car picked him up, and they left. And about 15 minutes later, he walked out all showered and dressed. And 
he drove away. And so that, you know, I didn't get much work done that afternoon. That evening I went to my bookstore and I, I really, I didn't feel like talking about my books and writing because this thing had happened. So I just began unpacking it with, the, I said, look, I just want to tell you what happened to me today. And so I told the folks in the bookstore and kind of told them my story. And as it turns out, the guy that owns the bookstore runs a ministry where he hires special forces people to kick down doors and to rescue trafficked women and kids and boys. And they had done it from that motel. Mm-hmm. And so it created a great conversation with him and he introduced me to a lot of people. And I, that began a chain of conversations from people in law enforcement, from people in ministry to women who had been trafficked to all of those conversations. And, and now, now to kind of let you know, spiritually what's going on at the same time is while all this, this is going on and knowing that I process through writing, like if something's bugging me, it works itself out through my fingers Ordinarily, but while this is going on, I'm I'm in my Bible and I tend to read my Bible a lot because the psalmist said, "I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you." And I, it's living and active, and man can't live on bread, you know, all of that. So, like, I really love the word, and I'm in it, and I happen to be back in Luke 15, and in Luke 15, Jesus tells the three parables: the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Well, I've written a novel or two about the lost son. So I happen to be in the part where he's talking about the lost sheep. And just for some reason, and I can't tell you why, for some reason, I've read it a bunch of times. But while all this is going on about these two girls in this room and the trafficked people, I began thinking about this relationship of the shepherd with the flock. And for some reason, in the economy and kingdom of God, the shepherd leaves the safety and security of the flock to find the one done dumb sheep who got itself lost, either willingly or unwillingly, by decisions either he or she made on their own or decisions that were made for them. And he he doesn't stop until he finds the one sheep. And somehow in the economy of God, the kingdom of God, the needs of the one in that moment outweigh those of the ninety nine. And then he throws the sheep on his shoulder and comes back and he has a party and he does that every time. And it just struck me that that's, that's the most beautiful rescue story in this history of story. And yet, yes, absolutely. That is what Jesus did for us. And according to scripture is still doing for us. And I just began wrestling with whether or not I could tell a story about somebody who at great risk to themselves, would attempt to rescue, especially those in, in the trafficked world. And I was not real educated on the trafficked world until I dug my toe in and then kind of some folks really gave me a, you know, a peek behind the curtain. And it's now an illicit trade in terms of value. It has surpassed uh, the drug trade. It's the most profitable illegal trade. And the reason for that is because you can sell a gram of cocaine once, but you can sell a 10 year old boy 40, 40 times in a week. And you can do that for years on end. And it just made me mad and it, it made me want to throw up. And so out of all of that soup, I landed on this character named Murphy Shepard who bumps into this girl who's in a bad way. And he decides 
all right, I got to go find her. And there's a ticking clock because there's been a website created for her and she's being sold on the internet, which is something that actually happens on the black web. And there's a date and a time of a drop off. And so he knows he has a short window to find her and it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. But that was how the keeper series came about. Well, I'd never written a trilogy. I'd always written one-offs, you know, one novel at a time. And so I wasn't quite sure that I could do it. And I, I had come up with this character, Murphy Shepard, and I was about half the way through the novel. And I contacted my publisher, Amanda, and I said, I think I might have a character with some legs. Maybe this could be like a two-part. Mm-hmm. And then, then it grew into a trilogy. So that's yeah. where it came from, and that's kind of how it bubbled up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wondered as you started writing if you always knew it would be the trilogy, but it sounds like you get to know your characters as you're writing them. Yeah, I'd like to ask you, like, what are the main things that you learned in researching for this series about human trafficking, about the victims, the road to freedom and recovery? What stood out to you? Well... A lot of people being trafficked would not say they're being trafficked. Mm -hmm. Those who are trafficking them are masters at manipulation. So oftentimes the people being trafficked feel somehow shameful or indebted, or there's just that real weird manipulation thing that I've, and it's not until they get out of it and can see it clearly that they see how sick and twisted and perverted the trafficker made them feel. Uh, But there, there is, I've, been around folks who were trafficked and who are now free, there are two rescues. There's the physical rescue where somebody knocks down a door and rescues them from the prison in which they are being held, be it a motel, hotel, a a house, a car, just a lifestyle. And there are, there are women right now in dance clubs dancing that are being trafficked uh, just as much as anybody stuck in a hotel room. So, There's not a really well-defined boundary. It's pretty broad. So the first rescue is a physical one. But just because you've gotten someone out of physical harm and out of being raped 10 times a day doesn't necessarily mean they've been rescued. And the second rescue is a rescue of the heart because there's a thing, there's trauma, the body keeps the score. There's all of that, which is way above my pay grade. But the second rescue is when someone has been trafficked, and I don't, I don't know that the time frame or time, the amount of time matters, but there's a thing that happens in the trafficked person, be it male or female. And after they've been so used as property, they lose all sense of their own value. And they tend to, they tend to, there's a part of them that sort of separates from their physical body because they can't stand to live in this body that people are doing untold things to. And so it, the second rescue is a rescue of the heart and really getting through to them and telling them you're an image bearer of God. Like what you see in the mirror started in the mind of God. And he took the time to think you up. Mm-hmm. He fashioned you together from the dust of the earth and then breathed into you the, the Ruach or breath or spirit of God. And you're an image bearer of God and you, you are of priceless value. And if you doubt your own value, let me walk you back to the cross because you are of so much value. 
that the Son of God literally came on a rescue mission for you. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's a thing that happens, you know, understandably in the heart of people who have been trafficked. They just lose any understanding of their own value. So trying to get down in the trenches with them. And there are great ministries that do this, that really just get down and walk alongside people for a year or two years or whatever it is and walk them out of the prison of their own mind that somebody put them in. Mm -hmm. And that really can be a lifelong journey, but it, it certainly needs that intense intervention for the first few years. Well, hey guys, let me drop in for a minute. As you know, this podcast is listener supported and that means it's made possible by you, our listeners. Have you noticed that there's no ads on Java with Julie? And we do that to keep this a safe space for people that are processing through some difficult issues related to sexuality. You know, our mission at Authentic Intimacy is to bless and equip you and others like you. And as you listen to our podcasts and engage with other resources, will you prayerfully consider partnering with us financially by giving a donation? You can make a one-time donation or set up a recurring donation of any size. And all of your help enables us to continue this needed ministry to people who are asking big questions about God and their sexuality. To find out more about donating, click the donate link at our show notes. I would imagine that one of the joys of being a fiction author is that you can write things into existence. And uh, in this series, you write about this place, Freetown, mm-hmm. and your your main character, Murphy Shepard, has tons of money because he's a best-selling author and he's got like all these resources at his disposal. And I, I'm guessing in some ways that's like you imagining, if I could do anything to fix this problem, this these are some things I would do. But do things like that exist? Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. There are absolutely places like Freetown. The reason that you and I don't know about them is because the people who own and run them don't want traffickers to know about them. Because traffickers, once they sink their hooks into somebody, it's taken a lot of manipulation to get that person subdued and subjected to them. Mm-hmm. And they don't like losing the return on their investment. So I've, I've known of multiple people who were rescued placed in a safe place and their trafficker found them and attempted to take them again. So it's, yes, there's, there are, there are free towns. It's just that they are not, they're pretty well kept secrets for good reason. Yeah. Another thing is that in my, and I don't even, it's not even fair to call it research. In my pulling back the curtains on this really sick world, I learned a lot more than I can write. I mean, there were literally times when I would finish talking to somebody and I mean, God bless them. They would share their story with me, but I would come back to my office and I would sit down and I'd be like, Lord, my body is not meant to carry all of the stuff that I just heard. And so I just got to lay it at your feet. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to process it. I don't, I'm so mad. Mm -hmm. I need help. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of times when I would, pray that. And then I would ask the Lord, look, I need you to help me figure out how to tell this. Cause if I tell what I know, nobody's going to read this book cause they're going to be grossed out and they'll shut it. Yeah. So I got to walk a fine line between what is entertainment in a sick way. It's, it's like, how is this entertaining? Well, 
I'm not trying to entertain you or titillate you with the idea of trafficking. I am trying to help you understand it, but I'm, I'm trying to introduce you to the one who routinely at great risk to himself goes and rescues those who can't rescue themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Lastly, another thing is that folks I've met that, that have been rescued, every single one of them without fail told of in their darkest moments, they would sit there and they would hope for somebody to kick down the door. And oftentimes somebody did, or in a couple of cases, they just ran. And then somebody found them in a Target bathroom or whatever it might be. It's a horrible thing. So yeah, trying to figure out how to write about it. You started this whole interview by talking about how you were, you were learned from your aunt that you could read this guy because he's safe and doesn't use a lot of language or whatever. But if you really unpack it, I'm talking about the most grotesque thing any of us can possibly imagine. And I'm trying to do it in a, such a way that doesn't make you want to throw up, but makes you pull for the people who are both being trafficked and the rescuer and get you through three stories worth where I'm not sugarcoating or compromising or acquiescing, but I am, I'm also not just titillating you with something to sell books. Yeah. So I don't know that I did it right. And I, I'm not claiming to have the monopoly on it. I'm just telling you that's the tension that I did wrestle with and do wrestle with. I think you did a great job. Like I didn't even know the book was going to be about human trafficking until probably about three quarters of the way through the first one. So I was intrigued by the story and where it was going and the characters are complex. And when I say looking to read authors that aren't writing trash, there's reading that's redemptive, that is honest and hard. And a lot of your novels do that. They take us to places that really make us wrestle with with evil, with our own evil, with guilt and shame, with hard topics. So I don't want to just read fluff either. So this is one person's opinion, but I think you did a, a really good job. And I also have, because of what I do for a living, I've heard those stories as well. Stories that you just, like, I remember in this one situation, hearing these stories and just thinking, God, I really thought that there was a border on how far evil could go. And now I'm confronted with stories that make evil seem so much darker and deeper and more pervasive than I thought you would allow. And I'm not sure what to do with that. There's a time and a place where, you know, even something like I was talking to my son about watching Schindler's List. Like there's sometimes we need to sit in a place of confronting something horrible and horrendous and really say, okay, what does this show me about myself, the human race? And what does it show me about where is God in the midst of this? And I think you did a really good job of bringing up the topic very honestly, but tastefully as well. Well, let me ask you about your main character, Murphy Shepard, because he's an interesting fella. You know, there's a part of me that's like, there's no way possible like one guy could do all this stuff. But you kept cheering for him and his dog kept surviving, which is great too. I never wanted your dog to die. But I even think like 
in your own research and, and interacting with some of these special forces guys who are doing this work, are there those kinds of almost superheroes that are enduring? And, you know, I just like to know to what extent is it fictional and to what extent is that fiction reflecting reality? Well, there are absolutely and very definitely men and women who wear pagers or their cell phone goes off at 2 a.m. and they're on a jet 15 minutes later and they fly somewhere, sometimes outside of this country, and they knock down doors and take people away from very bad people and they're back on a plane at great risk to their own self, sometimes carrying bullet holes and land back in this country, you know, at 7.30 the next morning. Those people exist. My pastor, Joby Martin, got to meet with some of them several months ago. And um, it was just a group that had been brought together, and he was, he was talking with them. And, and they began asking some very real questions of him. They wanted to know, because they had killed people in order to rescue people. And they are killing people to rescue people. And... They wanted to know, look, I pulled the trigger on these people, and chances are good I'm going to pull the trigger on these people again. I would like to know, how does God look at me when I stand before him? I thought Joby's answer was so perfect. I wish I was in a place to be able to say the same answer to them. He said, look, you need to understand that there are children right now locked in rooms and they are praying to God to rescue them. And his answer is you knocking down that door. So you just keep going, doing what you're doing. You keep rescuing people. I loved his answer. And I love the fact that there are men and women who really are this good. And this, you know, you said maybe there's somebody, maybe Murphy Shepard is a good bit too good to be true. Okay, whatever. I'm writing fiction. Mm-hmm. I'm, <laughs> I've had people critique me over that before. I'm like, all right, you go write your own book. I'm writing my yeah. book. This is the character I wanted to create. Mm-hmm. He's also very much wounded and hurting and, yeah. and broken. And there's good reason for that as well. So I don't know. Is James Bond as good as James Bond? Is Jason Bourne as good as no, but yeah. we're reading fiction. The one thing, though, that I felt like and I still feel like is emotively true and resonates authentically with me is that I feel like Murphy's intentions and his heart and the reason why he does what he does is grounded in something that we can all understand and empathize with. And I think in most all of us, we wish we were like that. Right. You know, that's a big piece of fiction is it's not just reflecting reality, it's reflecting the aspirations and the metaphors of what is good and what is evil. And ultimately, like you said, reflecting the one, reflecting our savior. So I get all that. And I get that you write characters that represent more than one person could possibly carry themselves. But one thing that I noticed in Murphy Shepard, as well as a lot of your male characters And Charles, this is like a big conversation happening in our world today is what is healthy masculinity? You know, with all the conversation about toxic masculinity and gender confusion, there's a lot of conversation around how we've lost what it is to be called to be a man and to step into that calling. And your characters have this this courage, this bravado 
of, hey, I'm going to go in there. I am going to punch the guy in the nose. I am going to rescue. But they also tend to have this call to love that is just beautiful, which again, as a woman, you read it and you're like, I don't know if all this is found in one man, but it's found in Jesus. But just the way that uh, your character refuses to buy into lust, refuses to objectify women, it's a very rare thing, I think, even within the Christian community, to meet men who understand love to that degree. And I'd just love to know, how did you learn that enough even to be able to write it? What I'm about to say is not real popular in today's culture, I don't, but I don't really care. I'm not. If I was searching for popularity, I would write very differently. You just talked about gender confusion. God is not confused with your gender. Mm-hmm. So you were asking about how do I write characters this way? I had a really, my dad died December 27th of 2020. Mm. I had him for 51 years. He was never confused about being the man in our house. He was never confused about loving my mom. He was never confused about laying down his life for her. I mean, the plumb line for us is Ephesians 5, men, in the same way. Lay down your life for your wife as Christ did for the church. And so that's the starting line for us. We either do that or we don't. And that's God's call. That's his command to us. That's that's what love looks like. I, I mean, think about the disciples for a second. If we're going to we're going to talk about you, you said that he loved my character's love without question or whatever. Let's look at the disciples for a second. It's the night before Jesus goes to the cross. They don't quite understand the next day, but they know his tone has changed and something's funny because he's now wearing a towel and he's just washed their feet. He said, in the same way I've loved you, now go love one another. And I don't think they quite get it until about 24 hours later when they're sitting there, standing there, watching his lifeless body drip onto planet Earth. And his eyes are probably still open and that there's dead as a doornail Jesus. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him feed multitudes. They've seen him heal the sick. They've cast out. They've seen him do wonders unheard of. And yet there he is dead. And they have no idea how this happened. And then they go, oh, I'm supposed to love people as he loves us. And he just laid down his life for us. He could have summoned the several hundred million angels to his beck and call, and he didn't. And the reason he did not is so that he could make a payment on our behalf that I could never make. So what does it look like to love somebody? Well, it looks like you lay down your life for them at great expense to yourself. He also said, and I think Matthew 12, from the abundance of the heart, the Matthew's, the mouth speaks. So if he's in here, even though I'm not trying to write agenda-driven fiction that thumps you over the head, his character and nature ought to bubble up. Mm-hmm. And so if my characters, at great expense to themselves risk bodily harm because they love deeply. Well, I love that. And I love the fact that it models him. When I was in graduate school, I studied a lot, a lot of writers, C.S. Lewis being one of them. But Walker Percy was a, a big one I, I, I latched hold to. He was a Catholic evangelical. He, his first book, The Movie, Movie Goer, won the National Book Award. And he, he was he didn't want his fiction to be this Bible-thumping thing, but he prayed. He said, look, I pray that my books are road signs to Jerusalem, that if I write enough of them, they'll point people to him. And that has been my prayer for – Christy and I have prayed that 10,000 times. I'm in the 25th year of a career. I've written 25 books. 
And I still pray. As recently today on the drive home, we just were driving back in and out of town. I was praying. Lord, I pray that my books reflect your character, that they something about how you allow me to write the, the way I put words together somehow circumnavigates the calloused places in our hearts and still comes in and touches us where we're still tender and we can laugh and love and forgive. And I pray that my words do that. I also pray that they don't And just please hear my heart when I say that. I, I also pray that it's not so Christian easy that it turns people off mm-hmm. somewhere, somehow. There's got to be a way to say things in a new way that people want to know what's going on here and who is this guy and what happens. And and then their affections are stirred. Is this really possible? Mm-hmm. I was at a book signing several years ago in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and a lady walked up to me with one of my books. And it was a beautiful book. It was all the duct tape on the spine. <laughs> pages were all dog-eared, coffee stains and It was a beautiful book, probably not worth 10 cents at a used bookstore, but to me it was beautiful. And she just walked up to me with tears in her eyes and she said, this book walked me out of suicide. Wow. She said in the days that I didn't want to get out of bed in the days when I wanted to swallow all the pills, she said, I would hold the pills in one hand and your book in the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I pray that that happens. Well, I'm sure it's happening all over the place. Many of the stories you'll never hear. Can you reflect on the power of fiction? You know, I think we tend to, if we know somebody's hurting, we tend to want to give them a self-help book. Why is a fictional book like the ones that you write in some ways more powerful? Well, I spent a lot of time in grad school trying to look at that very question. And I used to have a really well-polished, academic-sounding answer for why we as people are hardwired to receive information via story and how it's the deepest transfer of information. But as I've gotten older, all I know to tell you is that Jesus told parables, the greatest teacher in the history of teachers. You know, he told stories. And people believed in him or not because of those stories. Many believed, some did not. And so I think there's something in us that loves the fairy tale, that we organize truth by the stories that we hear. And I don't think there's a better organizer or purveyor of truth than story. So I'm grateful that the Lord lets me do it. He's also let me write some nonfiction, and and I love that. And even in my nonfiction, I tell a lot of stories. But I... I don't want to ever quit writing novels. Um, I'm grateful that he lets me do it. And it is how I make sense of this place he has put me. Mm. Do you have a character that you've written that you most identify with or maybe that you've learned the most from? Well, a lot of my characters are not a lot. Pretty much all of them are far better, far purer, far they're better communicators. Their intentions are better. Their motives are better. All of that. So I'm, to some extent, I'm writing the person I wish I was. I've just finished a nonfiction book called It Is Finished, and it's a 40-day pilgrimage back to the cross. It comes out next February. I realized in writing it that I really travel through the Gospel of John and take everything back to the cross and looking at the exchange, what Jesus took from us 
and then what he gave us. Every day I would sit in this chair. This is the chair in which I wrote that book. And I was met with two things. One was my inescapable and very great need for the cross. And that it's the only solution to the problem that is me. And there's far more mercy in Jesus than sin in us. I was, pre- I was, <laughs> I was preaching in prison last week. There's a a prison south of here, about two hours, um, and it's. Uh, I was in the Lifers Prison, and um, it's a women's prison. My books have made it in, so they've read all these books. I've read a bunch of my books, and none of these people are ever leaving. They've all done horrible things, and even as horrible as all of that is, there's still more mercy in Jesus than sin in us. There's no place on planet Earth that the blood of Jesus can't snatch us back. I told you about my pastor, Joby. He and I had written a book, and it was his second book called Anything is Possible. And it ended up in the in, on death row in Arizona or some state out west. And a lady got a hold of it, and if I mentioned her, you would know who she is. Her trial was very public. Her crime was horrific. And I think a lot of people would say there's no salvation for someone like that. And to say that is to mock the cross of Jesus and say it's not good enough. And she wrote us a letter, which is beautiful. And this woman found the Lord. She has really surrendered her life. To, we're going we're gonna to see her in heaven, I believe. Mm-hmm. And she said, um, she said if, Jesus not, if Jesus Christ is not the solution to the problem of mankind, there is no solution. So I would love to write books that somehow stir our hearts and our affections. And I don't have to lay it out. They don't have to be Bible thumping, praying every other third page, quoting scripture. That is, I don't know that that's how we get to people right now. But somehow, if I can write characters that reflect him enough and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does, I'll just plant road signs and he can take it from there. The best fiction, in my opinion, are stories that really move my heart, which is why I really enjoy the Murphy series. And I encourage you to dive into Charles Martin's books. The Murphy series has three books, The Water Keeper, The Letter Keeper, and The Record Keeper, where he unpacks some of the practical challenges of rescuing people out of human sexual trafficking. Now, all of these books and Charles' latest book called It Is Finished are linked in our show notes. And Charles said it so well, there's far more mercy in Jesus than sin in us. And friend, I pray that that truth surrounds you today as you wrestle with perhaps sin in your own life. By God's grace, we serve a God who can and longs to save us, no matter what our stories are. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And would you consider leaving a review in your podcast app that really helps other people find Java with Julie? Well, that's all I have for you today, and I'll see you next time on Java with Julie.